0: Well, hello. Great that you can join us uh, today. Uh, My name's James. I'm one of the pastors here at City Church. And I have the pleasure of continuing our series uh, called We Need to Talk About. Uh, And today we're going to be talking about sex. Uh, And uh, when I uh, was speaking to a friend who doesn't come to church, isn't a Christian, about the fact that I was going to be speaking on this uh, subject he was pretty confused about what I would be doing uh, and asking if I was going to be using diagrams and essentially taking some kind of sex education class and so I just want to reassure you that there will be no diagrams, there will no, be no sex education uh, lessons uh, today, um, but uh, rather than uh, doing those things, what I want to do is look at the biblical vision for what sex is, and that it 's actually much bigger. Uh, And much more exciting, actually, that many people would realise. And so we're going to be looking at uh, a passage in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So I want to encourage you, if you've got a Bible with you, why don't you open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry. Uh, The words are going to appear on the screen so you can follow along uh, with us. Uh, But uh, before we do that, I want to ask the question, why is this topic... So important. Why do we need to talk about sex? And I've got a few reasons uh, for us to consider. The first of which is that in many ways, the topics of sex and sexuality is probably the greatest area of conflict between the Christian worldview and the secular worldview. You don't have to look that hard to see. That for the secular person, the Christian ethic around sex and sexuality is often seen as oppressive, repressive, it jars uh, against those progressive instincts, uh, and it seems to be so outdated and out of touch with our modern day culture. In fact, if you're watching this now and, and you're not a Christian, I wouldn't be surprised if you were attracted to some of the parts of the Christian faith, but would also say that you could never be a Christian because of its hang-ups and weird attitudes towards sex. And so it's so important that we understand why the Christian faith is so different than that of the secular culture. And I want to show uh, you today that the way that the Bible describes and paints a picture of what sex is and can be is actually all about human flourishing. in fact, I'll go further and say and suggest that that our culture today is deeply confused on this topic of sex before even exploring what the Christian faith has to say an impartial observer of Western culture uh, when it comes to sex would quickly see that what is being promoted and lived out is not leading to human flourishing at all. It's not just that the cultural norms around sex have begun to disintegrate, but rather there are no norms at all. You could describe the contemporary view of sex As an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. You see, people are seeking all sorts of new ways to experience sexual pleasure. Whether it's multiple partners, casual hookups, pornography in its multifaceted forms but they are not finding the fulfillment and satisfaction that they were looking for. You know, there are numerous studies out there that show that the group of people who are, who are living uh, promiscuous lives, who are single, are the most dissatisfied with their sexual lives. And much of this has come out of, of what we would call the sexual revolution of the 1960s, in which there was this breakaway from the traditional view of what sex was for, and, and a promotion of freedom and liberty and expression when it came to sex. And one of the areas that we've seen uh, this is the, is the dramatic and, and often, you know, really concerning rise in the accessibility and addiction around pornography. Pornography, which was seen as, as something of a harmless habit, has become an, a powerful and destructive addiction. I don't think anyone could have foreseen the destructive effects that pornography has had, but we're now starting to see pretty mainstream campaigns against pornography with the sexual exploitation of of largely young women and the financial greed that is driving this billion pound industry. We have many, many reports of pornography diminishing people's sexual appetites and destroying the real tangible sexual relationships that they have. The well-known musician... John Mayer was interviewed recently in a magazine and and this is what he said. He said, this is my problem now. Rather than meeting someone new, I would rather go home and replay the amazing experiences I have had. What this explains is that I am more comfortable in my own imagination than I am in actual human discovery. So that's one way that we can see that the wheels are are coming off when it comes to sex in our culture. But a second way is when it comes to, when it comes to sex in our culture is, is the struggle around body image. There has been an exponential rise in the amount of sexualized imagery that is all around us, which puts a huge amount of pressure, particularly on women, but more and more now on men as well, to have a body that reflects some of the images they are seeing. A third way is family life has often been destroyed. The emphasis that the sexual revolution particularly played upon desire and that your desires are your chief driver in your life and and that you have to respond to them, you you can't repress those desires. But what that has done is it has legitimised any kind of unfaithfulness, uh, often legitimised divorce, And also clear moving away from lifelong commitments in case you desire someone different. And there are incredibly sad statistics of how many children are now growing up in single parent families. And so those are just some of the implications around the disintegration of sex and the way that our culture has warped sex at this time. But as well as our culture being deeply confused about this topic, then it's also right to say that the church, in a global sense, is also experiencing deep confusion. And I think I can see this in a number of ways too. Some, of the adopted, some have adopted some of the practices of the world and that they're not actually looking that different anymore. The distinctiveness of of what the church and what the Bible says around this topic seems to be dissolving. There's been a changed view on celibacy and, and it's often seen as unattainable and unrealistic. Which means that the whole Christian view on sex becomes unattainable and unrealistic. And becomes deeply unappealing. You often see that people living in the shadow of Of guilt and shame when it comes to sex. Some of you know that your your life and experiences perhaps haven't matched up with the biblical picture of sex and it feels incredibly difficult to talk or even to think about this. And with that some of you have experienced abuse and that has caused unimaginable pain and shame. And the church has often not had an answer towards those things. Some of you feel like you failed, that you're damaged goods. Some of you feel like you're failing now and feel unable to break free from this. I think one of the, the reasons why many have struggled in these areas is because the church has failed to give a positive, compelling vision of what it means to express our sexuality. And what I mean by that is that the church has tended just to give out a list of restrictions or rebukes. You know, don't have sex before or outside of marriage. Don't do pornography. And those aren't bad things. In fact, they're absolutely necessary. That message is so important to be clear on, particularly in this day and age. But what it has failed to do is give a positive view of human flourishing in this area. And so we need a fuller vision of sex to show that the Christian faith is is much more than a set of restrictions or being anti-sex, but rather that the Christian faith has a much higher view when it comes to sex than you might realise. And so we're going to read some verses from the New Testament, like I said, in which the Apostle Paul it is responding to some claims and questions that a church uh, that he knew well in Greece are raising with him. And so we're going to pick it up in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12. And we're going to read to the end of the chapter. And it's worth saying that the lines that you're going to see in speech marks are what the Corinthians are saying, and Paul is responding to them. So let's pick it up in verse 12. I have the right to do anything, you say. But not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Well, what I'd like to do is spend the next few minutes considering what Paul has written in these verses and to see three key thoughts on the matter of sex in this passage, which I think is going to help us. And those three things are power, the power of sex, the purpose of sex, and finally, the perils of sex. So let's start with the power of sex. And Paul is is responding to this church in Corinth about some of their false beliefs around sex. And Corinth was a city and a culture very similar to ours, in fact. Corinth was particularly a hub for trade in the Near East. And so you would have people from many different cultures swarming to uh, the city, descending on the city to explore what it had to offer. And and the sailors who would be working in and around the docks areas were particularly known for their licentious Behavior And the city developed that kind of reputation. And here is a church planted in this city. And it was a city, you know, it was that kind of place where you would say, you know, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. Uh, And if you were ever labeled uh, or called a woman of Corinth, uh, then you were basically being called a prostitute. And so Paul is responding to some of the claims, the temptations, and perhaps the pressures Uh, that are on this church, in this city. And in verse 12 and verse 13, we see something of that attitude, don't we? The Corinthians were essentially claiming that they were free to respond to whatever desire they had. In fact, they equated sexual desire to that of an appetite for food. Uh, If you're hungry, they say, you go get some food to satisfy your hunger. And so if you feel sexually desirous then you should be free to satisfy your desire. I don't know if you remember uh, that song from the 1990s. I'm aware that some of you weren't even born then. uh, From the Bloodhound gang. Uh, But the line, you and me, baby, we're nothing but mammals, so let's do it like they do it on the Discovery Channel. Uh, I bet you didn't expect that line to be shown in church. But sex was, was seen as an animalistic desire that needs to be satisfied. That by having sex, you are finding someone else that can satisfy that need, and you are there fulfilling that desire. But Paul's attitude to sex is very different. Look how he responds in verse 16, in which Paul says that if you have sex with a prostitute, you have become one body with her. And he's not just talking physically, of course, when you have sex, with someone, you you do become, as it were, one body with them. But the key to understanding this is, is when Paul writes, the two will become one flesh. And here Paul is quoting uh, from the book of Genesis at the very beginning of the Bible, when God made man and woman, Adam and Eve, the very first married couple, in which they were given the gift of sex to multiply and subdue Or take responsibility for the earth. And Paul is essentially saying that that sex is far more than a physical act. This is more than just two people having a good time. But in actual fact that sex is two people being joined together, being fused together, being made one flesh. It's an incredibly powerful image. And so sex is, is therefore an incredibly powerful gift and it's therefore not something to be fooled around with. When a good friend uh, of mine was talking to me about his experience of having multiple sexual partners, he said that in the moment it was great, it was fun, no strings attached. But he came to see that the reality was that every experience was like giving away a piece of himself, to the point where he felt nothing anymore. He was numb. Sex is powerful. When experienced in the way that God intended it to be within a marriage, it is something that is to be enjoyed and delighted in. It's like putting money in the bank that you might reap a reward later. But in the wrong way, it's like, stealing from a bank. You get the instant reward now, but you will eventually get found out and pay the price later. Or putting it another way, and, and you may have heard this analogy before, but sex is like a fire in the fireplace. It's it's a great thing and it, and it heats the whole home. Sex within the parameters that God has given is like a fire in the fireplace, but Outside of those things, it's like a fire in the carpet. It can burn the whole house down. And Paul is reminding and pleading with the Corinthians. Don't you know that sex is joining two people's body and souls together? And so that every time you attach yourself to someone and pull away, join with someone else and pull away, you are tearing yourself apart. Sex is far more than a physical act. It is full of power, significance and meaning. And so you think, well, for, for sex, if it's, if it's powerful, well, why has it been given to us? What is the purpose of sex? I want to look at a few Uh, reasons why sex has been given to us, the reasons, the purpose of sex. And firstly, it is the ultimate symbol of a marriage covenant. And to help us, I just want to stay with this idea of being one flesh a little longer because when you look at the biblical narrative of becoming one flesh, it's an incredibly rich idea. We've seen that it's the combining of, of body and soul into one person, which is an, a really powerful image. There is now no, you know, no individuals in a marriage between a husband and a wife, but they become a joined unit. And so if a marriage is about two people becoming one in every sense of the word, then sex is the ultimate symbol and the lived experience that reflects that overarching reality. It's much more than an act of physical satisfaction. It's the act of becoming totally vulnerable with the other person, becoming naked and giving yourself to them. And sex, therefore, is is the most fundamental way of saying to another person, I belong completely and exclusively to you. And you belong completely and exclusively to me. We are one. We can see this in the Genesis passage where Adam says, This at last is the bone of my bones, the flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife. And they will become one Flesh. And this is wonderful. They were both naked and they were not ashamed. It's a beautiful and intimate picture. Before sin has entered the world, we have this amazing scene of what marriage and sex was intended to be like without shame, full of enjoyment and satisfaction, the joining of two people. And so like when we take communion every week where we remember the promises of Jesus in his death and his resurrection, it's a weekly reminder when we do that. In the same way, when a married couple comes together in sex, they are in fact renewing their vows or their promises to each other. If you've been to a wedding, you would have heard these words, all that I am, I give to you and all that I have, I share with you. So it's a symbol and an embodiment of the promises made in marriage the second thing is is that it's, it's something to be enjoyed. Uh, we, what we are therefore saying is, is that right from the outset of, of human history, as the Bible describes it, that, that sex is a gift from God. It's part of God's good design for the world. Uh, in another part of the Bible we see uh, in another book of the Bible we see an unfolding story between two lovers which gives us a vivid picture that sex is something to be enjoyed and cherished. And I guess for some people who have come from different backgrounds, different contexts, the issue of sex can often be seen through the lens that sex is something that shouldn't be talked about openly, that it is a taboo subject. In fact, if you go back in history, sex was was really just seen as a function to have children rather than something to be enjoyed but here in Genesis and other books in the Bible like the Song of Songs we see that God's intention for sex is the exact opposite sex is a gift from God and it's full of significance and meaning and so if you're not a Christian this morning and you recognize anything that I'm saying so far about sex being a some kind of transcendent experience in any way, actually the world, that worldview more closely reflects the Christian worldview than you might realise. So that's the second purpose of sex, it's to be enjoyed, it's to be cherished. The third thing is it's is been given for procreation. I don't need to give you the whole chat about where babies come from, uh, but undeniably a purpose of sex is children. Children. And that God's plans and purposes would be carried out through the generations. And those words to Adam and Eve in the beginning to multiply was a clear instruction that children were to be the fruit of marriage. And then fourthly, sex speaks of an even greater reality. In verse 14 in the passage that we've read, Paul writes, By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead. And he will raise us also. And if you just look at verse 17, Paul writes, But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Ultimately, sex is this intense picture of two people coming together, which reflects and paints uh, or points to the picture of our relationship with God. You see, the marriage covenant itself, the promises that are made between a husband and a wife, is a picture of Christ laying down his life for the church. And then the church laying down its life in worship of Christ. In fact, in in another letter that Paul writes to another church, he charges husbands to love their wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Like these verses show, Jesus through his death and his resurrection has removed the barrier between us and God. So that not only can we draw near to a holy God, but that this relationship is so intimate that it's like a baby in a mother's womb. We are joined to him. We are dependent on him, unable to be separated from him. And there's this connection between a marriage, between a husband and a wife, and that of the relationship that we are, in fact, invited into by God. And so marriage and sex points to something of that that current reality, but it also is a picture of what is to come. That, that might sound a little strange, uh, but let me explain what I mean here. It's, it's often banded around, isn't it, amongst Christian circles, that there will be no marriage In heaven, Uh, but that's not actually true. There will be one marriage in heaven between Christ and His people, His church, His bride. But why use the the marriage metaphor as opposed to say the language of contract to describe this relationship between Christ and His church? Well, the biblical picture of marital sexual union is nothing less than an anticipation of an even deeper union with God himself. Glyn Harrison, who has written a fantastic book, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll show it to you at the end, he writes this, Whether we are married or single in this life, sexual desire is our inbuilt homing instinct for the divine, a kind of navigation aid showing us the way home. So you can think of of sex almost like a a kind of body language. Our bodies talk to us about a greater reality of fulfilment and eternal blessing to come. And so I hope even just by looking at those things that you're beginning to see that sex is far more than a moment of passion with someone. It is deeply powerful. It holds incredible purpose and significance. And it's why then, when we get to verse 18, that Paul writes this, flee from sexual immorality. It's like he's saying, now that you know these things, now that you've seen something of the vision of sex, now that you understand that sex is far more than just an animalistic desire. It's it's this incredibly powerful, meaningful, full of significance thing. Why would you ever consider engaging in this with someone that you are not married to? He's built this incredible picture of what sex and marriage looks like, looking back at the Genesis story. And that is all about flourishing and enjoyment and fulfilment and satisfaction. That to engage in sex in any other context is utterly foolish. Foolish. It's like he's saying, stop feeding the dragon, because at some stage it will devour you. Run away from it, flee from it, he says. And so Paul, in these next few verses, outlines some of the perils with sex. And first he says that that sexual sin, it not only harms other people, but it in fact harms ourselves. Just look at verse 18. He says, all other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. That fire of sexual desire used outside of the parameters of God will will burn your house down. It will cut you up into a million pieces. You are self-harming yourself, Paul is saying. And that can be... Uh, the, the implications and the impacts of sex before marriage, outside of marriage, but also pornography, being exposed to inappropriate material, and so on. And if you think, well, hold on, James, Paul, was, that's pretty strong from Paul. Uh, just hear what Jesus has to say about it. He says in one of the Gospels, if you look at a woman lustfully, you have committed adultery, adultery, with her, in your own heart. Jesus is deeply serious about this too. In verse 19, Paul writes that if you are a believer, you are a temple, you are a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And and he begs the question, or in fact, he, he states really, that you cannot be joined to God and at the same time be joined to someone that isn't your spouse. They're strong words, aren't they? Paul says, Do you not know? Have you not considered this? How can you possibly say Jesus is Lord and at the same time follow your own sinful sexual desires? And he finishes it by saying, Honor God with your bodies. And it's often at this point, isn't it, when we're confronted with some of these verses. Or even just listening to me, that you can feel like the finger-wagging pastor or the finger-wagging Bible is coming out. And the judgmental pastor comes in and tells all the boys and girls to be good. But if that's where you are, then perhaps you've already forgotten the wonderful vision and the wonderful gift that God has given can you see how quickly it is to forget those things? It's like, it's like getting to the Grand Canyon and instead of beholding the incredible landscape, we focus in on, on the sign that says, be careful of the edge. The sign is there for your safety, but don't miss the point. Don't miss the incredible vision that God has for sex for you. And just as we... We come to an end. I just want to be aware that there are different groups of people that have had all sorts of different experiences when it comes to sex. And the first is that, you know, if you're not a Christian here uh, listening to this, I do just want to say there is actually no expectation from me that you have to live this way. We're not trying to impose our worldview onto you. But hopefully, we're just trying to draw out what the Bible says about sex and that it's actually something to behold and to show the high view that the Bible has for sex. The second group of people I just want to talk about is, is, is those that are single who are, who are watching this. We can sometimes approach These topics around marriage and sex as if it's irrelevant to us at at that current stage of life. Let me just say this to you if you're single and part of City Church. In living for God and honouring God with your bodies, you are also upholding and honouring the covenant of marriage as well as any married couple is. You have an important part to play in this. And it's so important that you hear that. It's worth saying that if you're married as well, just a, just a, a bit of a caution to, to those that are married, don't think that somehow uh, living, you are living out God's ultimate plan for humanity any more than someone who is single. That is a dangerous path to go down. So I just want to encourage you, if you're single, you are doing a great job. If you're honouring God with your body and with your life, you are upholding marriage and sex as well as anyone else. Keep going. The third group of people is that you know when we talk about sex, it, it can bring up all sorts of emotions and triggers, can't it? Horrifying experiences, perhaps. Guilt and shame because of previous relationships or sexual encounters even the inability perhaps of or the struggle to have children i want to recognize that even with a positive picture of sex it can be difficult to see past our own personal journey in it those experiences can can so often become Identity-shaping experiences, can't they? And the enemy loves to prey on those things. And it's so important that we hear the gentle and tender words of Jesus in these moments. Here's what Jesus says. He says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, whatever your experience, whatever your story, you are never too far away from the love, the power and the grace of the Lord Jesus. He is ready to receive you as you are, so that he can completely wash you clean. You know, there may be some people who say, well, if Jesus knew what I had done, he would never accept me. What the Bible says is that he does know, and yet he still loves you. He still chooses you. He still sees you as a precious son and daughter. He wants to bring you home. And in a minute, uh, we're going to sing one of my favourite hymns, uh, Before the Throne of God Above. And in verse 2, I'm just going to read out these words, which says, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within upward, I look and see him there, who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to take a moment now to be grateful for the incredible gift of relationships, the incredible gift of marriage and and for sex. Lord, we thank you that there is a clear vision for that in the scriptures, that you haven't left uh, a mystery there for us, but that you speak clearly about it. And we're grateful that you give us things in order that we might flourish, that we might grow, that we might be able to honour and worship you with our bodies. And God, I want to particularly pray for every single person who's watching this now with varying experiences and stories when it comes to sex. I pray right now that they would respond to you. I pray that the words of the Bible would, would linger in their hearts, that they would chew on these things. That they would consider what you have said to them and what they might need to do about it. Lord, I pray that I would do the same in my own life. Consider the struggles in my own life when it comes to sex. Lord, we thank you that you speak. But we also thank you that you draw near to us. In fact, we are joined to you forever, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. We thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.